श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए श्री भक्ति विनोद परिवार की जाए गौर भक्त बृंद की जाए गौर प्रेमानंदे सो Traditionally on this day for the last few years we have been discussing Shri Pad Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur's Guru Bhastakam eight prayers in praise of the guru very famous in Gaudiya Vaishnavism and particularly in uh, the Bhagavad Parivar they're sung regularly and uh, that's been recommended by Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur himself especially during the Brahma Muhurta He's given a benediction in this Palstuti, the fruit prayer, what would be the result of chanting his Gurubhastakam at that time, that one will attain love for Radha and Krishna in Vrindavan. So, this year we're on the fourth verse. Last year we discussed the third verse. And they have something in common, verse 3 and verse 4, in that they deal... ostensibly with archan archan means the ritualistic worship of the deity which is a prominent part of the the method and practices recommended by bhakti siddhanta saraswati thakur for the general devotees and we see that it is also participated in by the highest devotees either for the sake of creating facilities for neophytes to take advantage of or out of their own ecstasy at which point it really transcends the idea of archan in vidimarg and becomes a spontaneous type of baba uh, worship so at any rate the deity worship is prominent in godi sampradaya and there are many wonderful important temples around the world and in those temples the deities being worshiped nicely every day all day so archan is important it seeks some qualification and in this way differs from harinam nam bhajan nam sankirtan nam sankirtan doesn't seek any qualification people participate in it even unknowingly by hearing the the chanting of the devotees and they can chant without any qualification whereas archan requires some qualification and nam prabhu is very mercifully disposed to come to us and qualify us for participating in that and such participation will help us then to take advantage of hari nam prabhu so this is how it fits by nam sankirtan we come in the fold we come meet krishna personally at the yogopit at the altar and worship him there and enter the realm of ritual and from there we become qualified to enter into the into the spiritual world itself so nam is on both ends archan in the middle in the middle realm of ritual halfway between spiritual world and the material world lord appearing in in material elements but acting spiritually it's a great mystery So this first uh, the first fourth verse of of the Guru Bhastakam deals with this and in, uh, in relation to food pretty important item for all of us food is after all life 
without food we cannot live. And so we move for food, get energy so that we can do something else, but then we need more food. Food is life. Food is so uh, basic to our existence. And so to tie the two together, worship and food, it means to say that worship is also essential for our sustenance, well-being, in order for us to exist in any real sense. And food is connected to worship also in the general sense. Food comes from sacrifice. How is that? It means you have to work if you want to eat. So work means you make some sacrifice, then some food. But it is not only from work that food comes. It's from work and from grace. In other words, we may work, but if it doesn't rain, if the sun doesn't shine, if we suffer from extremities of global warming, for example, then we won't eat. Not very well, at least no matter how much we work. So primitive peoples, they have this sense that by working, making a sacrifice, then they can live. Food will come. But they also sense that not only by the work, but by dependence upon that which is beyond their control, nature. And so when they sense that they're dependent upon something that's beyond their control, then what happens? They develop some reverence for nature, some veneration for that which is greater than them, upon which they are dependent. And so different types of worship of, of, the, of nature and, uh, and petitioning for rain and sun and so forth, these things are found in the most primitive forms of, of human society. And we find at the other end of the spectrum, they're found in the most sophisticated form of a manifestation of, of human society. And somewhere in between, we find some distortion of logic that finds people reasoning poorly that they are not dependent on nature, but that they can conquer nature by extension of their senses through, for example, technological development and so forth. And then this kind of imposition upon the environment is placed motives for it are often questionable. Sometimes the motives are put forward as being concern for the, the feeding of the entirety of the, of the planet, for example. But it's not clear that if, if the motive is not something other than exploiting for economic purposes, for a few, and, and so forth. And it's questionable for theistic people what is the necessity if we embrace the spiritual technology? Then we can draw from nature more and more unlimitedly by way of uh, venerating nature, appreciating nature as a manifestation of God and the controlling divinitrainer, the controlling factors, that uh, the godly factors beyond our jurisdiction above us. They have the sense that by moving in that direction, there will be uh, abundance. 
educated people think like this. The time of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, there was uh, in Nabadweep, uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's group, they were very sophisticated people, so many of them. They were also less sophisticated people, but many of them were poets and literateurs and uh, philosophers and big sannyasis and thinkers and so forth. And, and, in, and in today's world also, we have both sides of the spectrum. There are intelligent atheists and there are intelligent theists, and they have a different idea of how to go about it, how to go about surviving, how to go about living. In one sense, modern materialistic scientific worldview, not that science is inherently materialistic, it is what it is, it can be used for atheist, I should say, inherently atheistic, it's not. It's a way of researching and finding the, trying to find the truth. Uh, there are many theistic scientists and so forth, but one of the kind of uh, prominent ideas of evolution, for example, is that as a an organism becomes more complex, then it's considered to be more evolved. And thus, because it is more evolved, it can dominate sufficiently over others enough to survive. So that sounds like the most evolved species is the most brutish. We don't like that. that we were kind of repelled by that idea. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us, that to be the meanest, to dominate over others, that is the most evolved. No one would think that um, Saddam Hussein is more evolved than Mother Teresa. We naturally think that the most evolved person in human society is the kindest person, the most generous person. And social Darwinism aside, which is an extension of the Darwin's theory that seeks to incorporate altruism and uh, good acts and acts that appear to be against the principle of dominating others for for survival it seeks to uh, to, to broaden the uh, the paradigm I don't give it a lot of credibility my thought is more that if one is to be objective and and this is what science is about in one sense that one will uh, in the face of considerable evidence that contradicts the theory. In other words, when the theory is that survival is about conquering over others, and we find all of a sudden a species that's full of altruism, it's not just an aberration here or there that we find a dog doing a good deed or something like that, but it's everywhere, then um, time to reconsider the paradigm, be open enough to, this is more scientific, then rather to expand the narrow paradigm to include all of this new information and frame the altruism in a way as if it's just for the sake of survival of the species and it's also brutish ultimately <laughs> and, and so on. So my point being only simply that there are educated people on both sides of the argument and those that have the sense that nature is venerable, the systems of nature are, are venerable, worshipable, that um, for them to work for us requires some, some grace and, and living with some regard. I mean, humans are gods on earth, in a sense, but when they give up worship, even God worships, that we know. That is what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was about. He finds worship to be most desirable, not accepting it, but engaging in it. So when they give up worship, veneration, regard for nature, they become meaner. 
and become more exploitive and so forth. And and then uh, with technologies comes the question of morals and ethics and so forth. It, it is really like playing God, in a sense, to tamper with nature in such a way as to improve the food or to an extent, of course, that has its place. Uh, but when the uh, worship is taken out of the picture, then it is the opinion of the devotees that this will be counterproductive, that really life does progress naturally and happily through worship, through sacrifice. Food comes from sacrifice. Sacrifice, we have to work, means, as Gita says, and then we have to acknowledge nature. Anad bhavanti bhutani parjan nadanasambhava. Food grains, previous to that, he said, who works without sacrifice, who eats without acknowledging where the food has come from, they, they uh, incur a negative reaction. So to, to, uh, to eat and to live in the spirit of sacrifice and worship, this is the idea of this verse. It says, Chatur Vidha. That means uh, foods, four kinds of foods. Chatur Vidha Sri Bhagavat Prashado. Four kinds of food means all kinds of food. It means what's licked, chewed, drunk. Sucked, uh, it's, it's a Panishadic idea that uh, takes into consideration the, the biological fires in connection with life airs major and minor airs and and so this kind of four kind of food idea has its origin there and it's meant to encompass all types of um, eating sometimes it's described as five eating chewing licking sucking drinking <laughs> something like that so in a comprehensive way this verse is talking about eating but really it is not the guru who is doing the eating Today we offer a big feast to the guru, and after eating he says, you see, I don't eat. Like Durvas told the gopis, after eating the sweet rice that they brought him, they asked, how will we get back across the Jamuna? He said, oh, just go to the Jamuna and say, the sage Durvas never eats, and the river will open and allow you to pass. So they thought, well, how could this possibly be? We just saw you, uh, Baba eat that sweet rice and now you're saying that you didn't eat and so then of course he explained as he also explained and answered their question as to how krishna who they danced with the night before could be a brahmachari when he said just say krishna is a brahmachari and then the river will open and you can go to the other side and see durvas well it's all found of course in gopaltapani upanishad so the verse is about how to eat and not eat so to speak how to really be independent of, of the need to eat, how to live in worship. In other words, the more we sacrifice, the more we worship, the more we give, the more we, we live, as we've often discussed. So, Chattuabhidhasri and Bhagavat Prashado. Four kinds of food. Of course, any kind of food, Krishna says in one place. Yat karoshi arashnasi yat johoshi didasi Whatever you eat, offer it to me. Very generous in that statement. Another place, shortly thereafter, he says in the Gita, but if you really want to get close to me, then do it like this. Patram pushpam palam toyam yome bhakti prayachati tadaham bhakti paritam asnami prayatatmana What is he saying in this verse? Offer me fruit, flower, water, leaf? No. 
These things have been mentioned because they're so simple, so common that everybody has water. Everybody has a leaf, almost. Even in the city you can find a leaf, a flower, a fruit. He's saying it's the simplest thing to offer, but that is symbolic. I am eating your bhakti. Twice in this verse, bhakti is mentioned to emphasize the point. I live on bhakti, under devotion. We talked this morning about something else, about Ishwar Puri, guru of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, at some length, and his uh, how Mahaprabhu became his disciple and all. In the context of that, we, we spoke of how the Lord accepts the spirit of the devotees, the bhakti of the devotees, even if the offering is not perfect. As we said, Vrindavan uh, Dastakur says, the fool says Vishnaya, and the pundit says Vishnave. But if the fool who's not learned and scholarly says it wrong, but has devotion, I accept that. That offering is made, Om Vishnaya Namaha. I accept that offering. But not the pundits who says, Om Vishnave Namaha, but has no devotion in his heart. So, Babagrahi Janardana. This is Krishna. He accepts the spirit of the offering, the heart. I told the story once before how we used to, in Los Angeles, before there was the Arctic for Prabhupada that was performed every day, before that was instituted, we used to assemble in the temple room after Mongol Arctic at about 6 o'clock or 6.30, and we would chant the Gurvastakam. This is the old temple room in, in Los Angeles. Prabhupada's room was just uh, upstairs and nearby, and he could hear the chanting. And the devotees were pronouncing it wrong, Vande Guru Shi Charananda They were saying Vande Guru or something like that. Guru means cow. Guru. Vande Guru. So I offered my obeisance under the lotus feet of the cow. Not a bad idea. <laughs> hmm? But, <laughs> they're pronouncing it wrong, but he was still accepting the, the offering. Shiramarsh once commented, something to the effect that, yes, if you say it wrong, but with the right spirit, then Krishna will think, oh, I think he means that. That's what you mean, right? And still accept. Not that it should cause us think that that will give us license to be negligible in terms of the details. No. If our heart is really there, we want to learn the details and do it right. But there is some scope for making a mistake. And if the heart is in the right place, then it won't be an impediment. Krishna is not a businessman, not a, he's not a pundit, or a transaction with him is a heart transaction. This is the language, as I've said before, of Goloka. It is not Sanskrit or Bangla or Brajbas. It's a language of love and feeling. This is the basis of all communication in Goloka. So with feeling... With great feeling, Vishwana Chakritakur composed these verses. In this fourth verse, he says, Chaturvidhasri Bhagavat Prashadha. That the Guru is taking all kinds of foods. And Sri Bhagavat Prashadha is making the food into prashad, into grace, into mercy. He makes an offering uh, in consideration of grace grace of God, with gratitude, with affection, with with feeling, with love. Sri Bhagavat Prashadu. So Sri Bhagavat means Bhagavat means Bhagwan, God. 
Bhagavat Prashad. He is representing something in this transaction. The Guru is representing Krishna, but also a particular sentiment for Krishna. Sometimes we say that the Guru is a manifestation of the devotion of Sri Radha. So from this verse we can appreciate that point. Sri Bhagavat Prashadu. It means that uh, just as Sri is offering to, to Bhagwan, so the Guru is acting like this. She means Radha. So, Radharani is the cook for Krishna. Do you know that she was blessed by Durvasa? Whatever she will cook will be just like nectar and like a, a life-increasing Rasayana. So, Jasodamai made goes to great efforts to make sure that Sri Radhika is there every morning to cook for Krishna, even though she's married to another. She's the queen of Vrindavan, and she she insists, and so Radharani's mother-in-law cooperates, and Radharani comes to cook for Krishna. Malayasoda is convinced that these boys are always telling stories about Krishna's pastimes in the forest and dealing with formidable enemies and so forth. I don't really believe them, but maybe they're true. If there's any truth to it, at any rate, I'm sure that if he takes the prasad, the food offered by Radha, cooked by her, then you have the strength to be successful in all against any opposition. This is her thinking. So Guru is following in his footsteps, offering the nice foodstuffs to Krishna. But then the verse doesn't say, and then it's describing the Guru. He offers the, the, the boga of all kinds to Krishna, and then he eats it. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> it says that he offers the prasad to Krishna, and then he offers the prasad, Haribhakta Sangha, to the Sangha of Haribhaktas, to the Sangha of all of Hari's devotees. We find that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, you would serve prasad with his own hand, and everyone else, he would, he would insist, they would all sit down first, and then he would get up, and, and then he would serve with his own hand, only when there was enough on everybody's plate, then with insistence from everyone else, dragging him down, giving him a seat, then he would take this is regularly described in Chaitanya Charitamrita. He's the Guru. God is Guru, Acharya Leela. See, no, it's not that he, he is the bogey, the enjoyer. He's not offering the food because he likes this or that and, and, and thinking as I'll taste this afterward, but for the pleasure of Bhagwan. And when he gets it, then he gives it to everybody else. I used to marvel at Prabhupada's happiness in seeing the devotees take prasad, and the joy with which he would announce, and we are serving puris cooked in ghee, brought from Australia. Australia had a reputation for very good ghee, and the devotees would bring, each devotee, maybe a hundred devotees would come from Australia, each one would bring a, a gallon of ghee, and then it would be used for the festival in Mayapur. To see them have puris cooked in ghee and halava, this is, he took so much satisfaction in this. So much happiness in this. In close quarters, then the Guru, those who are serving the Guru, he naturally will see them as extensions of his own self, helping him to do the service that has been allotted him, given down, has come down to him from the Guru Parampara. So he'll naturally be concerned to see that they are well fed and nourished, not want to see anyone go to bed hungry. 
in the ashram, just as one would be concerned about one's own limbs and, and so forth. So it's not a position of enjoying it. It may appear as such, especially on days like this. And people may come without a, without a proper frame of reference and think that the, the guru is, is a kind of an imposition and uh, authority upon people and it's uh, unnatural and unbecoming and, and so forth. And he's going to eat a big uh, cooking, all this for him. And, no, it's not about his enjoyment. It's all about the satisfaction of Bhagawan, who is satisfied by being offered with devotion food. It means he takes satisfaction in this because food gives life to people. And if they understand how food works, how it's coming through nature, which he's behind and backing, and they develop regard for that, they take food after saying grace, they're acknowledging that it is dependent upon grace, then they can grow in the relationship with him. And this is real nourishment. This is real, the, the sustenance of the jiva. As I say, we live by giving. So when our giving is entwined, as it is in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, like probably it is in, to an extent more in any other religious tradition. I think this, this is really, Gaudiya Vaishnavism is really wrapped up with, with food in a, in a big way. People say grace before the meal and so forth, and there may be other similar kind of rituals and acknowledgments of God in different traditions, which are all laudable. But this one, Prophet said, it is uh, a kitchen religion, largely. So much about about eating, so so much about living, and tying eating and food, making the connection, really, where food comes from, where life comes from. And through that understanding, through that medium of food, making a connection with with God. And in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, in such an intimate way, you know, it's one thing to offer in the Vedic world. In the Vedic world, there's the yagyas for Bhagavad Gita says, food that's offered, that's accepted without sacrifice, this is uh, only like eating sin. It's not really talking directly about bhakti there, but acknowledgement of the gods who eat through uh, oblations and so forth. They don't actually eat what the humans eat. The human's food gets sanctified by acknowledging the, the gods and so forth through different sacrifices and pouring some ghee in the fire and doing the different rituals and so forth. But they don't come down and, and eat. It's not that Indra wanted a yagya to, for, to be, that he would be acknowledged as the provider of rain upon which people are dependent in order to eat. But Govardhan, what is the difference between Govardhan and Indra? When Krishna manifested as Govardhan Hill, then what did he do? That hill said, told the Brajbasis, make a feast, offer it to me, and give the remembrance to everybody. Feed the Brahmins, feed the, the men, the women, the children, the animals, everyone. He mentioned everyone, except him, except Indra. Hmm? But not that guy. And then he began to accept the food that they cooked. This is a big thing. It's a huge theological point. Krishna is eating what we eat. This means God coming to us in a very, very closely, very intimately. This is how the development of this idea of connecting food with worship and through eating and acknowledging the source of food and, and so forth and understanding how, how it works 
ultimately coming into intimate connection with God. This is the idea of, I tried to start in a, in a crude way, come to a, a very re- refined spiritual idea of what it means to offer and take prashad. This means to sit down with Krishna, like his friends in uh, uh, Agasura Lila, in the forest, all them sitting around with him and taking the food, putting it in his mouth, and he's taking it and putting it in their mouth, and then he's taking something out of their mouth and putting it in his mouth. When Brahma saw this, he became shocked. What, what kind, what's going on here? The gods are all exclaiming, something wonderful will happen in, the, in this village, this little village in, in, in India on earth. This Aga, Sura, the very personification of, of sin, was seen to merge into the body of Krishna, to go up and be dazzling in the sky with no place to go because the personification of liberation, mukti itself, Brahman itself, was inside of his body. <laughs> That's the idea. So when he came out, then oh, it, it could merge into into Brahman. So that God said, Brahman is Purna Brahma on earth. He's on earth in this form. So Brahma coming to see, and, and then when he saw this village boy eating, holding just a you know, not a real fancy preparation, not the food of a king, just some yogurt, some rice in his left hand. He said, what's this? And then he sees them putting the food in that boy's mouth and that boy's taking food out of his own mouth and putting it in his mouth. Can't deal with God like that. Hmm? No. So he was confused to see such a thing. So this is a very developed idea of a principle that people in most, even most primitive societies have some sense about. That food is important, we have to sacrifice to get that, and work, as much as that is sacrifice, is not sufficient. Along with that, we have to have some grace. In order to get that grace, we have to venerate and appreciate nature. Then we live in abundance. Walk carefully, honor the system. We have our place in it. We are gods of a sort, but not the whole. God's in the sort of being a kind of like, like they say, the steward of nature. But not that we would tamper with the system to the point that that we disregard this sense of reverence and need for grace as just being superstition. The whole Christian Lila looks like like a superstition, like this Govardhan Lila. That is worshipping some hill, worshipping some powerful manifestation of nature that they're dependent upon. Because they're cow people, and there's good grasses on Govardhan, so they need the hill, so they've made it into a god, and all these stories about it, and they're worshipping it. It seems very, very primitive. But we find Chaitanya Mahaprabhu drawing out a very sophisticated theology and philosophy about eating and about food, and how by understanding it, by taking this principle that, is, that comes naturally, this sense in primitive society, natural sense, and developing that, rather than moving away from that and becoming more mean-spirited. There can be a progression in that. Not that we have to remain on a primitive level of theism and understanding, but the principle which appears, as I say, naturally in people's minds. Just like the sense of that we exist appears naturally in human society. But people philosophize the way, the way that we don't whether it be in a sophisticated, quasi-spiritual way, like in Buddhism, or in a a gross materialistic way. But every being has a sense that they exist. And as I say, even in primitive society, as species, if you will, evolve from animal 
to human, this dawns this sense that there's a superior power. It's beyond us. It's worshipable. So to develop that idea, this is the development of humanity. This is evolution. The survival of, you know, the kindest or something like that. This is the uh, what dawns in the human psyche. And Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the idea is to take this and develop this to the extreme. And this is a good example of it by understanding the working of food. So the guru is about, in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, is about teaching this principle. And we are accustomed to taking prashad. And we tend sometimes to not think very deeply about it. In the beginning, in Iskon, in Prabhupada's mission in the beginning, then everyone would take prashad and no one would talk. It was a silent affair. You have to sit quietly, nobody says anything, because you'd be meditating. What's taking place? I'm taking prashad. Of course, we do find in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's group wild uh, abandon in taking prashad. In the avadut of Nityananda Prabhu, who's taking the rice and throwing it and saying, I've hardly had a morsel here, and the way to complaining about him and these kind of things. But this is all ecstasy, bhava. We don't have that kind of bhava, so with a little respect, we can converse and be happy taking prasad, no doubt. But some sense of what is involved there, what the significance of this is, Guru Devas meant to help us appreciate this. This is what this verse means. Chaturvidasri Bhagavat Prasada Swadhana Triptam. Swadhana. Swad means, oh, very tasty, delicious. Swadhana. Very delicious. Ana means food. It means grains. But grains is the principal food for a civilized society. Why are grains the principal food for a civilized society? Because civilization is about in one sense, agriculture. It's, in other words, the demarcation between civilized life and brutish life or hunting and gathering, let's say, which is a human life that borders more towards animal life, is the idea that, well, I've got this animal, cow. We don't know of any wild cows. I don't know of any wild cows. In history, there have always been domesticated cows. Maybe there were some in this country. I don't know. But... Uh, I've got a cow, and I can eat this cow and get through the winter. But with a little thought, I could reason, oh, I could keep this cow and get another, get a bull, and have a calf, and have food through the winter and through the summer in the form of milk. And I could take this bull, he's strong, and I could train him to till the field and produce grains. These animals are more valuable to me in this way, working with me, than working against them. This is civilization, then. The cow is like symbolizes civilized life. You wonder why we worship the cows and whatnot. People wonder. They think it's odd. And a lot of Hindus and devotees, for that matter, don't really understand very much about cows. Why cows are so important to Krishna? This is just one of the many reasons, some of which others of which we've discussed at other times. Cow is, is, is so valuable to human society, it symbolizes civilization. The demarcation between hunting and gathering and an agrarian-based life, which is technology properly applied. It means extending the work of one human, not putting many humans out of work. 
You follow? You still need one human to, to work the plow, but you can do more. His work can be extended. But like the tractor, putting so many men out of work. This is all an effort to work less, to beat the system. You have to work. <laughs> you have to sacrifice. This is the idea. This is healthy, make you happy, and ultimately bring you in contact with a God, an intimate relationship with a God. We should not try to beat the system. This is an abuse of one's, uh, in one sense, what also distinguishes human from animal, logic, reasoning, intelligence. We should use this to support, to fuel, to energize, to inform our life of sacrifice. Like I often said, we should use our head for what? To soften our heart for that purpose. Not to make our heart harder and such a gentle species as the cow. We're having a big problem here with our cows. The problem is that without advertising or anything, I'm getting so many emails from people who want to buy cows from us. So we had an idea we would support the monastery by selling cows to nice people. So I just wrote to one gentleman this morning who wanted to pull and three cows. I said, well, we're going to have some calves. I said, and he wanted to know a little bit about the miniature zebu, you know, world, and he was going to get into it. And I said, well, the prices are going up, and it's hard to find the cows these days, and they're having shows, and which generates more interest, and marking, you know, blue ribbon champion bull and and cow and and so forth and and so on. And and I said, our biggest problem, though, is not customers, but it, it is selling them. You understand? Our problem is selling them, not because we don't have customers, but because they're so endearing that it will be difficult. Now we have three or four calves on the way. What will we do? <laughs> How will we possibly part with them? We have one bull here, Mohan. He has a stallion amongst bulls, this fellow. I mean, oh, you wait and see how he grows. I can see his breed character and looks. Oh, he yeah, he would easily bring a very high high price. <laughs> if any man come here who wanted to look at our herd, he would want to buy him immediately. If he knows anything about bulls, but not for sale. I thought, well, what if he offered us ten thousand? I thought, no, I could never possibly. <laughs> I would have to. No, don't even mention the price. Don't talk to him. <laughs> so, 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 so endearing they are. So kind, so useful for human society, so helpful. They mark, as I say, the beginning of real civilization. And, it, and civilization is about coming closer to God. That's what it's about. That's what this whole evolution is about. Again, evolving from taking to giving. Everyone has the sense in human society that the most evolved person is the person who gives the most, who's the kindest, the most generous. This is our idea of evolution. This is our idea of progress. So when we say the modern world, this is Kali Yuga, the world is not progressing, people say, what are you talking about? Some antiquated idea that everything was great back in the Vedic age and now everything's deteriorated and... And we find that people, there's human rights, there's this, that, and, the, and all that, whatever they talk about that's good is goodness. The generosity that, that's coming, but that's really not, there's a little bit of that, there's some of that. We're advocating that, but it's not what's prevailing, right? It's more of a might is right and, and so on. This is not our idea of evolution. So to grow 
civilization gives us the chance to grow and become more kind. If we're going to be different from animals, it will be this. We'll be more kind, more generous, more giving, more self-sacrificing. This is development. This is progress. This is what human life gives us the chance to do. And my reasoning on it again is this, that in the dawn of civilized human life, this sense of the need to acknowledge higher power as it appears to us in its most immediate and close proximity to us, nature, the mountain, the tree, whatever may be locally, the thing that is, the sun, the moon, and so forth. So Krishna conscious, Gaudiya Vaishnava means developing this idea to the extreme. This is where we end up. We end up in what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was teaching about. Putting food in Krishna's mouth. <laughs> in the source of all the worlds, behind all the nature, who set up the machine of material nature. There's the backing behind it. It's not some empty thing. It's not some Wizard of Oz when you pull that curtain. No, there's someone really there. He's really doing something. And he's wonderful and charming. And he will sit down and eat with you, off of your plate. This again, this is not like Gita says to offer sacrifice and those who don't eat only sin. It's not directly talking about prashad there, this kind of thing. Those gods won't eat what we eat. Indra wouldn't eat what the Brajbasis eat. He's different. He's a big god. This is the beauty of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. God is saying, actually, I, I want to be like you. Let's be friends. That's true. But suhidam sarvabhutanam. That's also true, he says. I'm the god, yes. I'm in charge of everything, everything for my satisfaction. I own everything. It sounds a little stifling to us, but then he says, Sutridam Sarvabhutanam. But the implication is, if you accept this, then I'm your friend. If you don't, then I don't want to be friends with you because you're by opposing that, you're being unfriendly to everyone else. By opposing the natural system that I've created to sustain all living beings, people go without. It's an illusion. <laughs> it's a smoke screen. That we'll feed the world more by this, by that. Well, this is the way you will feed the world more. There, and what is the example of Guru? As I said, he doesn't eat. Nidrahara vihara kadi vidito sankhya puvakanamagana natibi. It is said about Sadgosamis. They didn't eat. Nidra, ahara. They didn't eat. They didn't sleep. They didn't mate. They were fearless. How they got like that? Sankhya Pubakanamagana Natibhi. Sankhya Pubakanamagana. By chanting the name of Krishna and counting 16 rounds. And Kirtaniya Sadahari. That is a. Get us on the page and we'll be on. By chanting, offering pranam in a regular way, like this. By doing the kind of sadhana Mahaprabhu personally instructed them to instruct us about living without eating, no exploitation, simply giving. So we have examples. But by giving, we will live. That is what this verse is about. Therefore, the Guru has said, Swadana Tuttam, two things. He takes the Swadana, palatable foods. I said, Ana means grains, but grains means food for human society. This is the idea in an agrarian-based society, in a civilized world. Grains are the main food. Therefore, veneration of the cow that helps to produce, and so on. And, and swadana, 
Oh, made in a very nice way. Mixed with the ghee and cooked and very palatable. Swadana tuptam. Very satisfying. He offers this to Krishna. The best of within his means. But, you know, sages, sadhus don't always have great means. Sanatana Goswami was offering dry roti, chapati, without any salt, saturated with bhakti. And Madan Mohan said, can't you provide any salt? He said, I know you. First you want salt. Then I'll give the salt. Then you want ghee. Then you want sweet. This, that. I don't have all those things. So if you're going to live with me, you accept what I have. Just the way he reasoned with him. If you're going to live with me, then you've got to eat what I've got. This is the kind of relationship with the source of food <laughs> that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was offering us. He says, okay. But anyway, then he arranged for a whole barge of salt to appear and get stuck on the Jamuna River there. And, and then once Anathan Prabhu helped that sailor get free, he came back after selling the salt and built the Madan Mohan Temple. So, so many things could be offered to Bhagawan. <laughs> he can provide unlimitedly. No problem. We say sometimes he doesn't talk to us for our own good, the deity. Because if he would talk to us, then, well, we would have no time to do anything else. And we have other interests, unfortunately, at this time. So he's generous. Probably just to say the deity comes in a form that you can handle. So He's generous in that he doesn't talk to you. Because if he starts talking, I want this, I want that, we have no time to do anything else. But as we become free from other interests, then he becomes more inclined to talk to us. We want that. So this is the idea of Guru. It says, verse says, he takes the four kinds of food, he mixed, prepares them in a nice way, within his means, very palatable, so the satisfaction of Krishna, then that wonderful thing, whatever is left, he takes that, and for the satisfaction of somebody else. Chaturvidhasri Bhagavat Prashado Swadana Triptang Hari Bhakta Sangam Kittaiva Kiptim Bhajata Sadaiva Bande Guru Sicharanadavinu. Then for the satisfaction of the devotees, he gives. It doesn't say he offers and then he eats and gets fat. And, no. Where is my prashad? Where is my meal? Again, Mahabharata with his own hand was serving prashad to the devotees. They had to drag him to sit down. Sit down, you take. They were embarrassed. He was his own hand, such a big hand, he put so much on everybody's plate. <laughs> he wanted to see them filled up in the language of Chaitanya Charitamrita to the neck. How much he can provide. If food is life, how much life he can give us. This Leela is showing this. And they are all embarrassed. Oh, our deity himself is serving. They would not eat until he sat down, but they had to drag him down. Sit, now, take. Oh, no, I only take some steamed vegetables, something like that. I am sannyasi. I'm, I'm not an enjoyer. Let the devotees enjoy. I'm in renunciation. No, they, they, by trick they had to get him to eat and acknowledge before them his position as the supreme enjoyer, appearing as a tyagi, as a renunciate. So it's about the verse very much about giving, ostensibly about archan, but it, it takes us further. Archan is always some reverence is inevitable in Archan. So, until taste for bhakti comes, not for for food, but taste for bhakti comes, then this reverence kind of melts, is dissipated. But before that, some element of reverence in there. But here we see, in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's vision, meant to take us beyond that. To sit in that 
forest with Krishna in that meal. To sit with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and take prasad with him, with Nimai Pandit. Participate in Kirtan with him like he's one of us. Then sit and take prasad. This is what Gaudiya Vaishnavism is offering to us. And the heart of that all is, is, is something that is not uh, foreign. It's not a foreign idea. We know we talk about it, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, it has a lot of esoteric details and terms that can't be translated into our languages and, and so forth. And people feel sometimes maybe it's just really a, really ahead of a lot of a lot of stuff and how does it really apply to me and it's practical and it really if you if the idea all of you who are understanding the terms who've come within the fold of this by Mahaprabhu's grace by the grace of the Bhaktivinoda Party Bar try to understand what it is you're involved in in an essential way and draw out these the implications of this so that it, that it makes sense to you in every way so you never this would bring you to Nishta then to use your intelligence that you will not be deviated by people say oh it's just kind of a superstition all these ideas and in fact you may be engaging in it as if it is a superstition and you don't understand what, what the implication of it is what the philosophical the logical the practical implication what it means oh you're taking this you've got some dolls and you offer the you know, cute little thing for people who aren't that intelligent why God needs to eat Brindaranya has a beautiful deity of that I gave her of Radha Madan Gopal in her little temple down here that <laughs> you should have the darshan but uh, she used to sometimes go home and visit her mother on different occasions to bring the deity and then the mother would say well, what are you doing in there and you know what does God have to eat for and, and these are simple in a way to, things to answer but you should be able to give some talk better talk than this about it what is the idea why we're offering the food who is the deity? What is food, Mom? Hmm? What is eating? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all this, this whole thing is full of things that are essential for human society. And whatever you can find in the society that is, appears sensible in, in terms of kindness, compassion for people, giving and so forth, which is what the heart of Gaudiya Vaishnava is about, you can understand, oh, what they're saying that's not like, oh, it's not in our book like that. We're not environmentalists. That's, an, that's Maya, for example. No, it's not like that. <laughs> well, let, let's, you know, let's have a, an earth festival and a lot of people will come, you know, and then we'll, you know, use it to make them devotees so that they can give up the Maya of the sattva guna of, uh, <laughs> of being environmentally sensitive and don't think like that. No. Krishna conscious ideas must be coming out here and there, short of Shraddha. Because Krishna consciousness, what Mahaprabhu came to give, is being given out. It's going out. He's all about those things. He's all about kindness. He's all about generosity. In every way. And then, of course, you've got to take those things and plumb them and the depths of them. That's how you end up shaking hands with Krishna, embracing Krishna, taking prasad with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. In this way, so use your brain. If you can't use it, then just listen to someone who's got one. Stick close, hang on to his dhoti or her sorry or her dhoti even. But it may be these days. So. <laughs> That's okay too. <laughs> hang on, <laughs> and, uh, and and gradually you know, your understanding will grow, and you become happy and fulfilled. So, this is a very nice verse of Gurvastakam. Hopefully, now when you chant the chaturvida, that is it. 
चतुर्दासी भगवत प्रसाद स्वरण तृप्त हरिभक्त संगम कृप्ति भजत सदे गुरो श्री चरणाम और वंदे गुरौर श्री चरणाम गुरु इज ऑल्सो गिवर ऑफ प्लेंटी इन वर्ड्स वाल यूर हियर आई वॉन्ट यू वॉक टू गिव योर सेल्फ to Krishna consciousness to give yourself to all the things that we do taking prasadam chanting japa and chanting especially kirtan tomorrow we'll talk about kirtan we'll talk about chaitanya mahaprabhu's principal contribution in, in the form of namsan kirtan this is how he's worshiped i don't want you to allow your mind to space out in the middle of the kirtan of all things and how you will do that how is that possible You say, how is that possible? My mind is going in so many directions. You give your heart to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Give your heart to this kirtan. Give your heart. And if that should move your whole body. Body is moving from the heart. So you give your heart to the kirtan, body will start to move. Mind will become absorbed. Get some glimpse, some taste of what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's kirtans, what this kirtan can do. How it is, oh, this is the best way to worship Bhagavan. We are augmenting our archan, our offering, food and, and other things with kirtan in Kali Yuga. So I want you to take advantage of that. If this kirtan starts somewhere, run there and sit or stand. Join the kirtan. That is the safest place, Bhaktivinotakur said, in the whole world to be in the kirtan of the holy name of Krishna. So please give yourself entirely. Take something with you. And give it to others. That is the idea. So, any comments? Any questions? Questions about Guru Tattva? How you find a Guru? We started to talk about that this morning. Not with your head only, but with your heart, with the necessity. If somehow we can awaken within people the necessity for help, then that kind of sense of necessity, urgency, that will... make it possible for us to see what we cannot see otherwise that is the idea yes is that why so many people are involved somehow in, in this vision they are questioning they have a hard time about guru tattva about thinking about I think so many people are proud and they can't have anybody else that's exactly what it's about because they don't have a heart well they're looking for a guru in a way that they refuse to look at Prabhupada, which allows them to see Prabhupada as a guru. But he's the only one they afford that uh, luxury, <laughs> that vision. You understand? They're looking at Prabhupada, sacred, not bearing down only with logic and objectivity and looking for the perfect person by way of looking for his imperfections. That's the first thing. The way in which they're looking for the perfect person is by looking for imperfections in persons. They don't know that much about what perfection is. Otherwise, they wouldn't be looking like that. They have a superficial understanding of what a perfect person is. Perfect person is not without blemish. What does Upadesh Amrita say? Even if he's blemished. The body, what is that verse? Even if his body is blemished, like we find uh, things flowing in the Ganges that are unclean, we should still bathe in the Ganges. We should still take advantage. Body means 
Gross body means subtle body also. What if he's not? What if he's a little like me? You know, quirky. and <laughs> has his idiosyncrasies and whatnot. Yeah. That rub you the wrong way. That uh, we should not run away because of that. If he raises his voice, we we'll go home. Our wife will raise her, her voice at us, or our husband will raise his voice. We don't run away from that. <laughs> we tolerate that all day, night. So they don't understand. Sanatana Goswami's body was full of open sores. When Mahaprabhu saw that in Puri, what did he do? He embraced him. What did he say? Krishna put those open sores on your body to test me. If I had not embraced you, then I would have flunked the test. You are a Vaishnav. In spite of what it, what it may appear on the surface, you're filled with Surup Shakti. This is what's moving you. Therefore, you're worshipable. Of course, all of his sores went away when Mahaprabhu embraced him also. That means with such devotion, he did. You have power too. <laughs> the devotee has power. That's given by Bhagwan. Use that power. You can do wonderful things. Mahaprabhu as devotee embraced him, cured him. So though they're looking for imperfections, but they're not looking for perfection. And they don't understand what is perfection. They don't have a good understanding of Gaudiya Bhashnavism, what it means to be a perfect lover. Krishna is full of defect himself. It's the whole idea of the Braj Lila. He has some defect. They're looking for perfection by looking for imperfections. And then naturally they will find them. But they don't allow themselves to look at Prabhupada through that lens with which they're looking at everyone else. Because if we look through that, we can find so many things also. Well, you know, he could turn somebody off, possibly. Uh, you could, you know, you read about it in the book. He says something that doesn't conform with contemporary social sensibility uh, and so forth. They just exonerate him and try to, but if I was to say something, uh, the contemporary idea that's, that's generous, that's kind, they can't understand that it's kind, it's generous, it must be Krishna consciousness. And it's coming from a learned devotee at the same time, not just a sentimental person. I think they are more learned. <laughs> I say something nice that doesn't fit into their understanding of what's in the book, and they think I'm being sentimental or something, or politically correct, it's spiritually correct. So they're looking for perfection, for a perfect person, by way of looking for imperfections. If we have some idea of what spiritual perfection is and look for that, then it would be better. So that's one thing. But again, otherwise, if you look only objectively in this way with your head, trying to find the perfect person by looking for the fault, they'll always find the fault. The way they actually look at Prabhupada, that's the way they should look. And why do they look at Prabhupada like that? Why? Well, no, but I, but I, yeah, that's true. But, but what I mean is that, that they have a faith in him. So, yeah, heart. Faith has been created. Where did it come from? Well, for us who were immediately his disciples, it came from him, yeah, and a lot of it came from those who had it from him. But they transferred it, this faith, was contagious. When we looked for a guru, as soon as I understood such a thing as a guru, I thought, I've got to, that's I've got to have. That's what you need. <laughs> that's everything. Hmm? Guru's everything. I've got to have a guru. <laughs> so I looked with that in mind, that it's got to be one. They're looking like there isn't anyone. 
except him. So they're not going to find one. But when we met Prabhupada, it wasn't like, at least the, it, some of us in, in the earlier days, like when I met Prabhupada, it was a little more developed, the mission. But uh, they had just got the lost, what the, the uh, Watsika Avenue Temple. It, it just, I think it moved from La Sianic and Prabhupada just started Bhakti Yoga, you know, instituted Bhakti Yoga. and It means the morning program and everything. And otherwise, he was just having them go out on Kirtan and eat, you know, Halavan Puri's at midnight and get energized and go out there and do kirtan and sometimes they even get in fights with people with the cartels and so forth <laughs> you know it was kind of wild gradually he kind of tried to organize it and systematize it and so forth and they called it the institution of bhakti yoga we're going to add bhakti yoga to the San kirtan and the devotees were dressing Lord Jagannath and bathing wearing jeans and they didn't have dhotis yet and that was all just starting to come so my point is, for me, and what to speak of for others before me, Prabhupada didn't have 60 books. He didn't hadn't gone all over the world, and and he's the Shaktyabesh avatar, and you don't even know where that term came from, and all this stuff they throw out that causes them to have their faith in. We had, in other words, to exercise our own sincerity in our heart and get a revelation that this person, this short, elderly Bengali gentleman who you had to like listen to real carefully to figure out what he was saying, his tonation it was, how do you, you know, listen to that, what is he, you know, you had to really have some bhakti, listen to those tapes and what is he saying we had to do all that, now they just come along with faith that's been generated by, by us, by his disciples and service in response to him that's fostered the whole thing and I want to like divorce some of us from him <laughs> from whom they got the faith that made it all possible, the reciprocation on the part of his disciples. And I had something to do with that. I did some service, too, to Prabhupada. You know, book distribution, <laughs> getting all those books out there everywhere, <laughs> something to do with that. I was fortunate to have, you know, to be blessed to have some opportunity like that. How much faith that created. They want to come along, grab a book, and tell me what it says. And criticize me and, and this person and every other guru on the planet. And they call that glorification of Prabhupada. We call it Vaishnava Aparad. And a perfect example of how not to go about looking for a guru. No. They have no necessity. They have no necessity to progress, people who think like this. Because when a progressive understanding comes, they oppose it. So it's a backwards way. We cannot look for the guru like that. No. But we should, if we're fortunate to develop some necessity, like Panchatattva told me, oh, you know, I got everything worked out in my life. I got my relationship with my parents is worked out. I got a, a good husband. I got that. I got beautiful kids worked out. And I thought, I still need a guru. I haven't worked this one out yet. So some necessity she had. I've got to find that. I've got to make that, add that to my life. It's the centerpiece of all relationships around which everything else should should revolve. With this, then, we, we go and, and look. Not with it, I, that you, you have a head full of knowledge and you know, and uh, but, no, but you don't know. That's why you're looking. You don't know. You need. You need help. Not that you, you're ready to tell everybody what's not a bona fide guru. And, no. So this is a very backwards way. And it's an unfortunate... I'm sorry for going on about this, but it's a big problem. <laughs> it's really... It doesn't sit well with me, as you can see. 
What else? Pagadishwar, you had a question earlier? I just wondered if you could elaborate on the concept or the feeling of cultivating your awareness of the Guru as your guide continuously within yourself, even when you're not in physical presence. I see you, you know, once a month or less sometimes. So, so maybe you could elaborate on some concept of cultivating an absence of physical presence of Guru or Gurus, the guides in your life. Yeah, you have to. Th- you have to, It's a cultivation. You have to think. What would I do if my guru was here? <laughs> I used to drive that Prabhupada's car. It was a Toyota, little mini Toyota station wagon. It was his car when he would come. I used to drive that to go to the Los Angeles airport to sell books. So I used to think, oh, Prabhupada could be sitting right here in the car, <laughs> and I would, I would drive it like that. This is a simple way. So, yeah, yeah, it's a cultivation. It's good to check in more often than, than not also. Is that a healthy concern that what I'm doing, my Guru Dave knows about or cares about? Not that I want to bother him with, with the details, but I used to try to find excuses to contact Prabhupada. Once I got a letter from Prabhupada, I thought, wow, he's writing me a letter. So I thought, I'd I find some reason to write him a letter. You know, it was hard because, you know, he was very busy, and so you also feel you don't want to bother him, but... I'd find reasons, excuses to write in a letter. and Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a question of love and appreciation of what I got and how it's so vital to me and important that uh, I, I want to keep that company, that association. We should have more programs more often. We need a temple. We can have bigger crowds and more programs. It's a, it's a cultivating the realization of how really dependent, just like how we found the Guru, was, like I said, we, we have to have a sense of necessity. And um, so it does, it's not that it goes away once we found it. We have more necessity then. So to cultivate that sense, that necessity is uh, said to be uh, in the mother of invention. So then we, we, we find a way to somehow bring uh, our Gurudev into our life and, make our, and give our life meaning. What else? Another question? Yeah. Please, please. Uh, uh, another nice thing to do is think of what can I do now so that when I see my Guru Dave next, he'll be happy to see me. Mm. So like, how can I live now? Very nice. You want to be able to look your Guru right in the eye and not have to turn away. Do you understand? So you want to live in such a way that I know I can look right at him and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm doing what he wants me to do. I'm following him. And that would be different from different people, different situations and so forth. But that was always something I did though. I would probably come, can I look him right in the eye or will my eye go like this knowing, <laughs> he's looking at me and I don't want to look, don't look too close. <laughs> no. So conduct yourself in such a way that when you see your guru then what do you say? They'll be, they want to see you. be happy to see me. You look at you. I know. I, I remember once getting in the in the car to go on the morning walk with Prabhupada on the drive, and just turning around, feeling like that, and just staring at him. Right? It's like, wow, it's beautiful to look at you. And he just looked back at me like, yeah, you look pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. So, more questions, more comments. Yes, Agni Dev. In this talk about searching out the Guru, yeah, I was thinking 
in case of Prabhupada, he's pretty much searched us out. Came, yep. He came. And then, you know, by his representatives going out, we became fortunate that he they found us. But like you say, when once we've found a guru, he found it. How, how the, uh, it's not the end of the story, how to make ourselves more understand our necessities, how we become more aware of what we need. Mm -hmm. For many times, it's we don't know what we need because we're so poor in our thought and our thinking. Mm -hmm. But uh, you want me to talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, we, we we need a guru. We think for certain reasons, and there may be, in a general sense, for the highest reasons. But there may be other psychological reasons, and emotional reasons, and so forth that we need a guru that are more really more pressing to us than the ideal. So then we gravitate towards those other necessities rather than towards the ideal. The guru is supposed to hammer on us enough to push us, encourage us, embarrass us somehow to move towards the ideal, towards the real wealth that the guru is giving. It's so much more than any other need, human need, that we have that he has to offer. He has what enables us to transcend the limitations of human necessities. And that's just the beginning of it. To transcend the human necessity, that's just the beginning of it. What is the wealth of, of love, of Krishna, of Prem? So, it's important that we don't get the answers to all the questions of life like by finding the Guru and then just say, okay, well, I got that done. I got all the answers now, so I'll just go on with my life. We can't quite go on with our life happily because all the questions haven't been answered. So we get the guru and all the questions are answered and then we just go on with our life. Not like that. We have to go then progressively and apply those answers in our life so our life changes. As much as we're willing to do that, then we start to mine the wealth of that connection. And it's, it's so you know, like a precious diamond uh, beneath the mountain of, of our uh, misconception, even about guru once we get involved. So, therefore, so many talks, so much philosophy, so many books, and and so forth. It's really important. I don't write these books just, you know, for you to even just read it once and say it was a good book. My books can be read over and over again. You'll find more and more there. They're spiritual books. It's not some academic pursuit. You'll find more and more there. Try to read them. If you can't read them, then, you know, call up somebody that does and say, what the heck does this mean? What is he saying here? What Go down the Tatvivek or something. It's, that's what it's for. So we need to make our group such that the, the devotees progressively culture what this is about. And, and then they see, oh, what, what is there? What necessity we have? What, we, we come to the point of we want that thing. We want so many things now. If the guru, you know, comes over to our house and he's nice and says, how are your daughters? You know, <laughs> that he's real nice and all, and everything's working great, but it's more than that. And unfortunately, back to the other topic, it's like if, if some of that is talked about, people think that's not what the guru is about. I don't know what they think he's about. It's about all these things. It's about love of Krishna, the madness of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. It's, that's what it's about. We should all become mad. Mahaprabhu became mad by the mantra given from his guru. 
rolling on the ground, and completely mad. So what else? Another question? Yes. Um, this is a complex topic, but um, how tolerant do we need to be of, of, uh, of a devotee or a so-called devotee who's been offensive to one's guru in the past or is now? And how do we avoid um, creating further, you know, Vaishnava parad, or is that even a concern? Well, that's a good question, but it's very detrimental to associate with devotees who are offensive to other Vaishnavas who are in, engaging in Vaishnava Parad, who have engaged and don't recognize it. It's very potentially uh, detrimental. And some of my students are in awkward situations where they're in proximity of other devotees who are friends, and many of whom are nice and so forth, but some people in the community are, like in relation to me, are in the real sense of the Bhaktivinoda Paribar and Prabhupada, for that matter, are, are offensive. So it's awkward. So as much as we should run away and you know bathe in the in the river and never see their face, it's not uh, practical for everyone to do that. Everyone connected with me, so we should be unsympathetic to that kind of propaganda. Hopefully, we will become educated enough to be able to answer and stand up and make a reply. Just like you know, you might live in an area and some devotees make some comment and then you should be learning enough to say, well, actually, this is the philosophy and this is what our guru is about and so forth. That would be healthy. And if you try to do that, even if you can't, even if you do it imperfectly, you'll grow because you'll go and think, I could have said this. I could have said that. I should have said this. And that's how preaching works. Then you go read the book. And, yeah, next time you know, I'll be able to say this. So that that's good. You should try to stand up. But if, you know, we, we may be weak and it, we may not have much education in it in, in Gaudi Vaishnava, and it, that takes time, so then as far as possible we should, you know, try to avoid such people. Uh, so that's the general principle, you try to defeat them, you you avoid them, or you, you know, cut out their tongue, it said. <laughs> so you can also do something like that. I mean, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's mixed. There are people that are suffering from misinformation that just haven't heard the right information. And so you should give your association to those people and allow them to hear it properly and exemplify the, you know, the ideal in such a way that people even are curious. I heard it was like this. You're connected with that, that guy, you know, Triparari Maharaj, the Swami, and he's like this and that. And, but they, they see from your own life that you're not like they would think somebody should be who's connected with, with me. Then that will make them a little open, and then you can, you know, give them the proper information that so they can be properly informed. Then you have to see how people function in terms of after having the right information, and that will determine how much you can you can associate with them. Although it may take time to give them information, but at a certain point, there is this a fact: some people you don't want to associate with. You don't even want to try to instruct them. This is the real Vaishnava Aparati. If you try to instruct him or her, it will only increase their their operad. That is the example. We didn't read the rest of the chapter, but I read on the beginning of the chapter in Antilila where Mahaprabhu deals with Ramchandra Puri. We heard at the beginning how he offended his guru, and thus he became he developed a sangskar, a tendency to offend Vaishnavas, and he became offensive to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And it was like no matter what happened, 
he would see the fault. He found fault in Mahaprabhu because he was a sannyasi. And he, when he came to the place where Mahaprabhu was staying, there were some ants. So this is how he's... It's very instructive how his mind worked. He saw ants. So he said, this sannyasi is eating too many sweets. Obviously. That's obvious. He's a sense enjoyer. He's a bogey. He's supposed to be a taggy. Everyone else, you know, he's just an enjoyer. And this whole, he just goes off like this. He's a sense enjoyer. I saw it myself. I saw it myself. They're, people, they're calling him a sannyasi, but he's just a sense enjoyer. He was eating sweets. He had a stack of them this high. This, this starts to grow like this out of proportion. And when you get down to it, all he did was see some ants. That's all. <laughs> it could have been any reason why the ants were there. But his mind worked like this. You can read it on the internet. People, you know, something comes. Way people take it, then they just go off like this. This means this, and that means this, and he's a. And then, then it starts the rumor mill, and all of a sudden it becomes, you know, fact. He's like this, he did that. He, so, just like Bhakti Samskar, Vaishnava Seva, Samskar for that, will, will make you think in the opposite way. It'll make you predisposed towards finding the good and so forth. So, those kind of people who are like, have developed a Samskar for that, you really. It doesn't do any good to associate it with them. Those are the kind of people that Bhakti Rasamrita said, you should cut out their tongue. In other words, you can't reason with them. If you give them good reason, they'll just turn around and, and it will just fuel their envy. They said, don't give milk to a, to a serpent because it's just it's a nice thing and you might well, do a nice thing. He's a mean guy, I'll do something nice. But the serpent's venom just increases and then his potential for biting you increases. So unfortunately there is a Vaishnava religion and the, the Vaishnava Aparad religion that's prominent these days. And uh, you really best just to avoid those types altogether. And there's a in between people as I say that may be influenced by hearing such things and just try to inform them and educate them. Does that help? Like there may be devotees who have misconceptions and, you know, you can still associate with them, and hopefully by that, you know, their misconceptions will go away. It's not that you shouldn't go there at all, necessarily. Some people, some people have the opinion, my Guru Maharaj, they criticize him, I won't go there. That's okay, too, if you have the strength to do that. But some people may need some company and some semblance of devotion. And Offering's been made now? Yeah. Okay, so let's do the Guru Puja, and then we'll Arctic, and then... Take Prashad.